Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right, before we get going too deep into hats, I have to tell you one thing. Uh, I want to tell you one thing, which is that uh, every couple of weeks we do a thing called Radio for the Deaf. This is, in fact, um, uh, well, it is an attempt to create a form of radio which can be experienced and enjoyed by the deaf community. So we have two wonderful interpreters uh, here in the studio with me. They are interpreting everything I say and everything the guests say into American Sign Language. Um, That is available on Facebook Live on the Colin McEnroe Show uh, page on Facebook. So Colin McEnroe Show on Facebook, you'll see a video feed of everything that we're going to do today. Uh, And it would be great if you know anybody uh, in the deaf community anywhere in America who might be interested in a radio show about hats. That's what we're about to do today. I mean, that may be a fairly small subset of humankind. Someone who's deaf wants to experience a radio show and is really interested in hats. Even if you're not really interested in hats, though, I think we can get you interested in hats. I'm betting on us. So let me talk a little bit about that before we bring the guests aboard. You know, um, okay, so my favorite hat scene well, there's so many great hat scenes, obviously, and the Marx Brothers could do amazing things with hats. Uh, the, the hat scene that sticks in my mind is an odd one. It's from the movie Deliverance. Uh, it's before they get out into the woods. They stop at a really, really old-looking gas station with those really you know, 1940s, 1950s-looking gas pumps. Uh, and it's actually the scene where the famous duel between the guitar and the banjo happens. But before that musical interlude takes place, um, Ned Beatty, who plays the character of Bobby, is talking to kind of like a country-looking guy who's hanging around at the gas station. Maybe he works there. Maybe he doesn't. He's got kind of a, you know, I, I don't know. He's got a hat. He's wearing a hat. Uh, it's kind of pulled down towards his ears. Uh, and Bobby looks at him and says, Mr., I love the way you wear that hat. Uh, and the man takes off his hat and examines it very carefully and puts it back on his head and looks at Bobby and says, you don't know nothing. Um, and I think there are a lot of lessons there, particularly if you remember what happened to Bobby eventually. Uh, but first of all, you know, hats are a very personal thing. Uh, and uh, you shouldn't be condescending about somebody's hat. The hat is the item of clothing we wear the closest to the face, unless you count eyeglasses uh, as some kind of clothing. Uh, it's the one kind of clothing that I can think of that we can uh, take on and off very uh, very easily or t- uh, uh, take off and put back on, I guess I should say, uh, very easily. As a result, it winds up having a lot of codes uh, bred into it. Um, so we want to talk about all that. We've got a lot of great guests here. We're going to begin with Claire Hughes, an independent scholar and author of several fashion-related books, including Dressed in Fiction uh, and her most recent, Hats. Uh, so Claire Hughes, welcome to our show. Thank you. 
Um, maybe we could just begin by saying a, a humankind, I, I guess, has worn hats since there's been a humankind. I mean, when they find somebody preserved in a bog from, you know, thousands of years a, a B.C. When, when, or, or Atsi, you know, frozen in ice, uh, he's usually wearing a hat. It's probably, though, a pretty u- utilitarian hat, right? The, the first, I assume the first reason we wore hats was to keep our head warm. Yes, they it's protective against sun and wind and rain. Um, but yeah, I think it very quickly becomes uh, ornamental and important and symbolic very, very quickly. Like how quickly? Um, well, there's a very strange uh, hat. You could almost call it headgear. It goes back a couple of thousand years. It's a, a long gold cone. Um, it's very, very tall. It's about two meters tall. It was worn in uh, northern Europe. Uh, it was clearly worn by the most important person in that group. Um, it's, they, they have been found uh, by archaeologists. So, um, and you, if you think of, uh, of for example, helmets um, in animal form, in fact, we, they, they're still around. Those strange fur busbies that uh, often you get guardsmen wearing, they go way back. Um, to warriors who would wear the heads of animals that they had killed in order to terrify the enemy. So it, it's more than protective. It's, it's very, very quickly it becomes powerful, symbolic, important. I do think that there we go through periods uh, in various societies where hats represent, I would assume, a pretty close demarcation of either your class, your religious affiliation, uh, your rank somehow or other. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of um, I just rewatched. The, the television adaptation of Wolf, Wolf Hall. So here we are in the 16th century, and of course Henry VIII's got these hats that we know from his portraiture, and, and many of the, uh, the the people who who are courtiers who surround him. Well, Thomas Cromwell uh, and Thomas More, uh, the most famous portrait of Thomas Cromwell, he's wearing one of those kind of trapezoidal hats that actually have these things that come down over the ears. Um, on the other hand, there's a whole bunch of people walking around in what are sort of caps these kind of loose-fitting, angled, silk, brimless caps. I'm assuming if I knew more about that world, I would be able to attach specific meanings to all those hats. Would that be correct? Yes, well, the, the caps are prob- have probably got an ecclesiastical connection. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, Henry VIII himself would have been wearing uh, a fine, probably a beaver felt uh, hat, which would have had jewels in it, would have been braided, um, the more jewels, the more braid, the more important. Um, so uh, the, the the beaver hat, um, which actually takes us to North America, sure. um, is the is the status hat. It's the, the it goes right back to the 16th century uh, at least, and uh, so for 300 years. Um, that hat was the key male hat. It has to be said that the, that the story of, of hats divides very clearly into male and female. Right. So when we talk about the beaver hat, um, I mean, what, what, I mean, I know that we're talking about a hat that involves the pelt of the beaver, but what's the shape of that hat? What does it look like? Oh, well, it's all kinds of shapes. Mm-hmm. Um, if you saw Henry VIII's one, is is fairly small and it's turned up at the front. It yes. will have a 
it's probably the, the crown will be concealed by the front, which will be covered in, in braid and jewels. But if you get into the 17th century, where it's that's really the, perhaps the most gorgeous time for that hat. It's what we call the cavalier hat. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's usually black, although it can be gray, even white. And it's broad brimmed and fairly low crowned. And, and it will be uh, plumed. It's very important that plumes become very important in, for that hat. And that goes on really up until the, the end of the 17th century. And it's the Puritans who take that hat, take off all the braid, mm-hmm. all the uh, the plumes, and they wear it as a, um, a symbol of protest, a symbol of their 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 religion. And then it actually gets transferred over to the United States, and the first congressmen will wear it, those tall black beaver hats. Right. So you've got, yeah, that um, uh, Puritan rejection of bejewelment uh, and adornment. I guess we should say that these hat trends are, are, are good for milliners and hatters and people who make hats. They're often very bad for animals, right? I mean, such a reliance on the beaver for all kinds of hat styles uh, and the reliance on plumes. I know plume hunting has driven uh, species of birds to the brink of extinction, including the snowy egret, I think, at, at yes, one point. Yes. Yes, so talk about that. Talk about like what happens to yes. animals. Well, I, it's, um, I, I wanted to give a, a, a talk about something I call bad hats. <laughs> and I, I took the beaver and then the ostrich hat, the ostrich feathered hat. And I mean, the story of the beaver is terrible. By 1600, uh, hatters had wiped out the European beaver. There just were none left in Europe. Um, and uh, so they, well, fortunately, although bad luck for beavers, uh, there was North America just full of beavers. Mm-hmm. And so the, the it was the Dutch, the French, and the British who turned their attention to North America, and they went over there and they used the tribal hunters, the Native American hunters, to hunt the beaver, um, which actually destroyed uh, the the tribal economies, the tribal agriculture, because the hunts were away for most of the year, um, and and. Fortunately, the silk top hat came in just in time to save the beaver in North America. So they survived. Um, but it's really a terrible story. I mean, the, the destruction of, of the Native American tribes was really because of the hunt for the beaver pelt. Right. And you have something that becomes kind of valuable in a way that exceeds any recognizable normal value you could attach to it. So you've got what? You've got even Native American peoples fighting one another over over oh, beaver. They're fighting each other for trading rights. And then, of course, the the the, very, the Dutch, the French and the British are, are competing with one another. They they exchange uh, uh, they exchange arms, they exchange alcohol. Uh, for the pelts, which is not doing anybody any good, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's it's an ugly thing. In fact, eventually, it's the British who who dominate. They take the the Dutch go first, then the French. But the the British uh, control of the fur trade is quite short lived, up until well, up until seventeen seventy six, and then you've got the American fur company that takes over with the John Jacob Astor, who is and still is the richest man in the world, and it's all down to the beaver. Um, the, in fact, the, the, uh, you could say that beaver fur was the most valuable single item of European trade from 1500 to 1800. 
All right, so you've got oh, so on, uh, we might as well since we've now uh, done in the beaver or, or pretty close to having done in the beaver, we might want to look over on the bird side where there's a similar thing going on, right? God save the bird whose plume becomes popular. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so then we, we switch because the, the, the beaver hats definitely for mainly for men, although women do actually uh, they, 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 they borrow those hats, but you, you're now in around 1800. The hat, uh, the woman's hat, suddenly explodes. Um, they, they, they are the biggest hats you have ever seen. Um, they're placed not down on the head, but on top of it. So you've got these big hairstyles with this great platform of it's usually straw, and they cover these in uh, in well flowers, feathers. And the most costly feathers are the egrets, you know, the ones you, you mentioned. And in order to, to get egret feathers, you have to kill the egret. Mm -hmm. Ostriches were a little different. First of all, the ostriches were, were hunted in North, North Africa. But then um, what you got was ostrich farms in South Africa. And, and then the, 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 they become a lot cheaper. But of course, the hats then, uh, there's a lot more of them. And uh, so ostriches are, are become valuable. And there is an a, a amazing hat. It's a, an iconic hat. It's called the Merry Widow hat. And you've, you've come across it. It was around about 1907. There was a, a, a musical called the Merry Widow. Mm -hmm. And it started in Vienna. It came to London. When it came to London, um, the producer uh, put all his money on a, an unknown beautiful actress called Lily Elsie mm. and he gave her a makeover and a, a famous uh, designer milliner called Lucille made her hat it was black with black egret feathers and pink roses and when she walked onto the stage in this hat the show stopped um, it was a sensation then they took the the show to the states in 1908 and there uh, it was uh, it was even more sensational um, the the uh, producer um, offered a hat to every lady who had bought a ticket with a coupon. And there was a, a, a riot at the first night when ladies stormed onto the stage demanding hats. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, that was the, the, perhaps you might say, the zenith of the ostrich hat. And then suddenly, around 1914, beginning the First World War, it just looked wrong it was too elaborate it, and of course you have the Audubon Society mm -hmm. uh, campaigning against the the awful depredation of of bird life and then suddenly no more feathers mm. and so what do you do with all those poor ostriches in South Africa um, <laughs> they just opened the gates and let them out mm. so it was bad bad for ostriches too um, so, you know, when we talk about all this and we talk about, you know, the incredible value of the of the beaver to a point that it it dis it, it caused uh, exploration of the new world by the old world. It disrupted Native American society. It really becomes this pinnacle of trade. Now we're talking about these feathers and it's all for hats. And, and I think for maybe people now who live in a society where hats are not really paramount the way they once were. That's hard to picture. But for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the hat, well, I mean, in in, um, in Virginia Woolf's uh, Mrs. Dalloway, uh, a milliner, so probably someone with a bit of a prejudice, says it is the hat that matters most. But there was some real truth attaching itself to that statement, right? Absolutely. Yes. Um, and, and really up until the 1960s, you did not go out without a hat. 
that was male men and women it was just just not done and in, certainly for men it could be an insult if you turned up at a for say, business meeting without a hat it was insulting mm-hmm. uh, it, there's there's a, a, a novel, uh, late 19th century, where a, a, a rather poor uh, clerk uh, is sent off by his employer to a business meeting and he puts his head out of the train window, unfortunately, and loses his hat. Hmm. And he knows he can't go to the business meeting without a hat. So at the first station, he buys another hat with his employer's money, assuming that it'd be okay. But it isn't. The employer sacks him. And that leads to a suicide. Um, so you, this importance of wearing a hat, the, the, the question of, it's a question of respect, self-respect, respect for your superiors uh, and your status is all tied up in this one item, the hat, especially for men. Um, we should talk a little bit more about that part of it, the notion of manners, the notion of etiquette, um, because because the hat is something that we can, as I said before, take off and put back on uh, much more easily, easily than we can do with any other item of clothing. It's a natural for various social codes. So at some point, uh, as you say, it becomes um, a, a way of dishonoring uh, an, an exchange if you're not wearing a hat during whatever social or business exchange that is. But then there's this whole business of taking the hat off, doffing the hat. Um, I know there's at least one instance where uh, Churchill uh, leaves his hat on, right, when he's supposed, when, when his French counterpart has taken his hat off. I think he's meeting. Um, I think he's meeting a Russian. Uh, a Russian official, and he the, the Russian takes his hat off, and Churchill keeps his on. He he might have done that again with the French, but he I think it would have been a bit more difficult with the French. The French are very very strict on etiquette. Um, the uh, the whole the the the, the French formality uh, and etiquette is very is for very important for them. Um, but yes, the the, uh, the taking off of the hat, and there, the uh, it's interesting. There are, are etiquette books which tell you just exactly how how much you should take the hat off. You should, if you meet a friend in the street and he's your equal, you just need to tip the hat slightly, a nod. You don't need to do anything very much. If you meet your social inferior, and this is an American etiquette book. Yes. Um, you don't have to take your hat off. You just uh, exchange some kind words. And move on. And if you meet a friend with a lady, you take your hat right off and you make a bow which includes both the lady and your friend um, and you stop and you bow. So there's a, there's a range of things that you may or may not do with your hat when you take it off. So yes, and, and there's then there's that notion of these situations where you should remove your hat. There are buildings now when you enter it, when you enter a church, a man is typically expected to remove his hat. Probably also in a restaurant, you wouldn't expect a mafia-connected uh, master criminal to be a person who could really advise you about hat etiquette. But here we have Tony Soprano getting upset in a restaurant when another man keeps his hat on. It's Fatim over here. We're gonna cap at a nice restaurant like this. That burns my ass. Where you going? Take your hat off. Excuse me? They don't sell hot dogs here. They took the bleachers out two years ago. It's my hat, I'll wear it where I want. 
So there, Claire, we kind of have the opposite of where we started. It's insulting to keep your hat on. On. Yes, it's, it's, restaurants are quite tricky. Um, it wasn't, people didn't go to restaurants really to the end of the 19th century. It was very difficult to decide whether that was a private space or a public space. Um, and there are, there are some, some outdoor cafes, you keep it on. Right. Um, so you've got pictures of, well, let's say, the French Impressionists in an outdoor cafe, and they've got their hats on. But if you go inside, then you've got an indoor space, and then a man should take his hat off. The ladies can keep them on. Uh, and uh, the, the, the tricky places were like, uh, for example, hotels. Whereabouts in a hotel do you keep your hat on? Where do you take it off? Um, you keep it on if you're on the staircase. But if you go into the dining room or a lounge, you take it off. Um, so it's, it, there, are also, there are all sorts of tricky areas like art galleries, museums. What do you do with your hat? Um, interesting, the interesting one is when you go to the theatre or the opera um, in the 19th century, and um, a man had to wear a top hat to go to the opera. There was, there was no question about that. So what does he do when he gets into the opera? He can't sit there with this huge hat on. So uh, a Frenchman called Monsieur Gibus invented this very smart top hat which with a flick of the wrist and a nice sort of clacking noise, it went absolutely flat mm. and you could stick it underneath your seat, um, which solved the problem of what to do with your hat in the theater. All right. So uh, despite the widespread popularity of hats um, from the 17th to the 20th centuries, there tended to be just a few real epicenters uh, of hat making. Um, one of them was Danbury, Connecticut, which is still known as the Hat City, although it's known mainly symbolically. Uh, we have a guest coming on here from uh, Danbury. But before we get to that, that uh, Claire, since you've kind of w looked over the entire um, world of hat making, what can you tell us about the fact that Danbury Danbury does occupy this very special place in the world of making hats. Well, I, I imagine it's a little bit like the English uh, town of Stockport. That's how I see it. Uh, it's probably near water. It's near a river. Mm -hmm. It will have access to a city not too far away. Uh, it will have, um, well, in, in Stockport, they have, uh, they have access to the coal fields. I would imagine maybe in Danbury it's more like fuel from, from wood. But you need the heat and you need water and you need transport to an, uh, a nearby town or city. And I, I imagine that Danbury is a little like that. Well, let, um, let's find out. Let's find out from Br uh, Bridget Gerton, a Danbury city historian and executive director of the Danbury Museum and Historical Society. Uh, Bridget, welcome to our conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me on today. And what can you tell us about this? How is it that Danbury in particular, of all places, comes to have this industry and a reputation to go along with it? We got lucky. <laughs> Danbury had uh, the raw ingredients to make hatting a success. Uh, as, as Claire was mentioning, uh, Danbury was similar to Stockport in that we had access to water, the Still River, which you need, um, you need a copious amount of water when you're making men's for felt hats. We had uh, a ready labor pool, uh, which we continually expanded. So each major wave of immigration to come to the United States, a portion of that immigrant wave ended up coming to Danbury. Uh, so we were constantly um, increasing our labor pool. And uh, we also had uh, ready access to fuel. We did use wood in the beginning, but when we got a train station here in, in uh, 1851, we started bringing in the coal. 
And uh, of course, that made the process uh, go go quicker. And uh, then we uh, also were able to transport our goods very easily. So uh, we could bring our goods down uh, by wagon, uh, by Teamster, uh, before we uh, got uh, the train. But um, the goods that we sold in places like Bridgeport or New York City were very expensive to, to transport down. But once we got a railroad station in town, we could load up those cars with all of our awesome Danbury hats. Uh, well, then the business really expanded. Um one thing that I was going to ask both of you, I was going to ask both of you about this, but Bridget, I'll, I'll talk to you about this. So Lewis Carroll gives us the mad hatter. We have the expression mad as a hatter. I've always understood this to have something to do with the mercury uh, involved or some mercury compound made in, uh, used in making hats. I don't know, does, does Danbury have a mad hatter tradition? Yes, we do. Um, unfortunately, we uh, in the Danbury area, and I, I include Danbury and Bethel and Norwalk, uh, which were also also had uh, many hat factories as well. Uh, we used uh, the solution of mercury nitrate in what we commonly call the carrying part of the process, and uh, this helped separate the fur. It helped the process uh, turning the fur into felt go a little faster. And what's important to know is that um, though it helped our hatting industry, it was um, environmentally disastrous um, on both the human side and the, and, and the natural uh, natural uh, side. So as we use this this uh, material, we, uh, the mercury, uh, it affected the workers, eventually affected the people who were wearing our hats, and it definitely negatively infected, uh, affected our, our environment. We poured excess uh, chemicals and materials into the still river, and uh, this was problematic. Uh, it was a compound problem that happened uh, year after year, decade after decade, uh, until we self-policed, uh, kind of got ahead of the curve on how to use mercury in the industry. Um, and then the federal government, of course, had all kinds of rules and regulations in the 1880s, 1890s, and 1920s, again in the 1940s, uh, to uh, kind of protect uh, the communities at large uh, from the use of, of mercury within the hatting industry and as well as other industries. Um, Claire Hughes, we, we yes. now know that, that that notion of the Mad Hatter, uh, yes. that mercury compound, did produce a kind of symptom, right? Oh, terrible. Yes. Um the, uh, in, certainly, it was the French and the British, both throughout the, the uh, 18th and the 19th centuries, were worried about this um, because the, when they were were, were processing the, the felt, they had to dunk the the fur the material in in a mixture of uh, mercury salts, nitric acids, and urine, um, and they had to put in and out and in and out of this filthy um, mixture. Um, I think recently they've decided it wasn't so much the the mercury that was coming through the skin. It was actually when they started to heat the the felt uh, when they were shaping the hats on the on the hat uh, the hat molds. But it was the fumes mm. that they were inhaling that was actually causing these. First of all, they uh, these tremors. You would start with um, very strange behavioural. Uh, um, um, situations where they would suddenly get hysterical and angry, and then you got tremors, and then you got madness, and then you got death. Mm. And uh, the, the French, both French and the British, were aware of it. the hat unions were aware of this, but in fact, they weren't able to to stop it until 1912. So, Bridget, now if a person uh, drives into Danbury in 2018, uh, there's no hat factory left, I assume. What is there? What what can we see? to remind us of this industry in Danbury? 
Well, we can point to some of the buildings which have been adaptively reused uh, for other business. We have a beautiful uh, sculptural piece uh, that the city of Danbury and uh, local Union Savings Bank funded a couple of years ago, and it's called the Hatter. And he sits in front of City Hall to remind us of our past uh, and, and remind us of the strength of the Danbury community. And we also have the John Dodd Hat Shop at the Danbury Museum where we talk about our hatting history and explore uh, hat making from small hat shops to large hat factory. Well, Bridget Gurton, first of all, thank you so much for talking to us. We wouldn't dream of doing uh, a show about hats uh, without talking uh, about Danbury. Uh, We're going to take a little break. Bridget Gurton, by the way, Danbury City Historian and Executive Director of the Danbury Museum and Historical Society. We're going to be back with more of Claire Hughes. We'll take a little break here, and obviously we'll be back with more about hats. So that's how you know uh, who somebody is, apparently. Uh, of course, that's Monty Python and the Holy Grail uh, because of the hat. We're talking about uh, hats right now. Uh, we've been talking about their different uh, functions, their roles, uh, their role particularly of sig- as signifiers of various uh, members. Of, well, actually, Claire Hughes, while we're on the subject of Monty Python, um, uh, Claire Hughes, by the way, independent scholar and author of several fashion-related books, including Dressed in Fiction and her most recent hats. I feel as though the hat that I associate most with Monty Python and all kinds of of other cultural expressions is the bowler. You know, every time I see someone wearing a bowler hat in Monty Python, that person I know is supposed to be boring, works probably somewhere in the financial sector. Um, And, uh, well, I mean, those are the two main things. But you think of bowlers in the way Magritte used them and the way Charlie Chaplin used them and the fact that they were, I think, probably more prevalent in the Old West uh, of, uh, of this country than the Stetson or anything we, anything we might identify as a cowboy hat. Bowlers can mean all kinds of different things, but what do they mean specific, like when, when Monty Python uses them, uh, are they pointing to a particular group in, in Britain? Well, yes, but by the time he's wearing them, it's become a joke. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, the, the, the bowler, I think, think in America you call them the derby. Yeah. Um, it's associated, associated with London businessmen. Um, but by the time you get to Monty, Monty Python, which is the 1970s, um, you've got that that whole late 60s um, <laughs> counterculture. Right. And the, the businessman, the capitalist, becomes dull and conventional. And the, the, the well, what you got in Britain at the time was, uh, um, on, on the media, was a, a, a whole satirical movement which was really sending up the previous generation um, associated with the Second World War and just in the 1950s, which was so conventional. So uh, Monty Python is is actually uh, mocking the bowler. Actually, the bowler has been used as a funny hat for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you've got Charlie Chaplin. But the, the interesting thing about Charlie Chaplin is that he, he uses it like a clown. But it's it's terribly important that Charlie Chaplin never ever loses hold of that hat, he always puts it back on. 
Um, and it's it's his respect, his self-respect that he <laughs> keeps keeps uh, he keeps clutching. Right. That's a great point. Um, well, so I think the other thing that's happening uh, there with Monty Python, it's happening here in this country by the time of the 60s and 70s, is that hats become something that people used to wear but don't wear so much now. Uh, here in America, we have often associated this with John F. Kennedy. There's at least this embedded notion, I don't know how true it is, that Kennedy killed the hat by not wearing one to his inauguration, something as important as that, no longer requiring a hat. But, but there's becomes a point where a hat is more of a signifier of something that ended in the 40s and 50s, right? Yes. Um, yeah, this, the, the, the Jack Kennedy thing, there's, very, there's a wonderful book called Hatless Jack, mm -hmm. which is all about this. It's, it's true that he didn't, uh, he actually carried his hat, he didn't wear it, and he wore one the next day. But the thing about Kennedy was he was acutely aware of his image. He was really the first president to know how important it was, how he looked. And he was handsome and he had a wonderful shock of boyish hair and he didn't look good in a hat. He didn't want to hide that. And so he he really never wore one. But actually, you could say it started in, th in the 30s. The, the decline of the hat was already beginning then. And Eisenhower refused to wear a top hat when he was inaugurated. He wore a hat, but it wasn't the top hat. Mm -hmm. So it... it you because Kennedy is a, a, an iconic figure, it's associated with him, but it was already beginning uh, 20 years bef before it had already started. Decline. Of course, that's for men's hats. And so ironically and paradoxically, Jackie Kennedy with her pillbox hat and her oh. other hat styles becomes, you know, something of a promoter of women's hats, probably in a way a little bit comparable to what Princess Diana uh, did uh, in England, too. Suddenly you've got yes. somebody who looks great in hats. Maybe everybody else starts to think, well, I'll look good in a hat, too. Yes. Well, uh, Jackie Kennedy chose the pillbox, which is interesting because um, – you know, she had, she had a lot of hair and she had a very wide face. And you've got to be very careful what you do when you have a lot of hair and a wide face, what, what kind of hat you wear. You can't wear a big hat, uh, otherwise you, you, you look like a you know, lampshade or a mushroom. Um, so she picked this little smart hat that actually had been very fashionable back in the 1850s and 60s. And it just sits on top of her hair. It doesn't hide anything. You can still see her gorgeous hair and her beautiful face. Nothing is hidden. So in a sense, she's bringing back a hat. But in another sense, she's also saying, I don't want the big gesture hat because I, you know, I, I don't need it. And uh, Princess Diana is an interesting uh, example because um, she did, I think she did in a way uh, bring back certain kinds of hats. Mm -hmm. She was very young and uh she was but she was smart and she picked uh for her milliners some very young men the uh john boyd philip tracy and but no particularly stephen jones and they 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 chose hats for her which were um a little bit jaunty uh the, the, and they were also slightly mannish she she uh she, for example, she wore a little tricorn 
Yes, um, I was uh, I was actually googling images of her hats today, and they 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 are all of the things that you just said. And I do feel as though someone needs to do a hat consultation with Princesses Beatrice and Eugenie, who seem to be struggling a bit. We're going to have to stop there, uh, Claire Hughes, uh, independent scholar and author of most recently Hats. Uh, very quickly, we're going to switch gears here. We have a lot of other hat stories to tell you, but very quickly, we want to talk about the kind of hat that you are most likely to see in America. It's not really a hat; it's a cap. Uh, and, and baseball caps or whatever we're, lids, whatever we're going to call them, have, have kind of taken over. Joining us now is uh, Jessica Smetana, a video producer and writer for SB Nation. So, um, Jessica, an odd thing has happened with uh, caps or, or, or lids or whatever we're going to call them, which is they've gone from being this kind of generic thing to a, a fashion item that expresses individuality. Tell us about that. Hi. Yeah, ah. thanks for having me on. Um, I think that... Um, for sports fans, hats have become kind of a way to show your allegiance to a team or to a city and kind of demonstrate your identity in another additional way to your clothing. And it's kind of become a no-brainer to put on a hat with a logo on it and kind of be able to use that as a way to express, like, who you are and, like, what you're all about, you know. And, and that kind of hat, I mean— it still is the case that somebody will, for promotional purposes, give you uh, a cap, you know, a thing that we could sort of basically call a baseball-style cap uh, and for nothing. But but it's also become kind of a luxury item. I mean, how much could you wind up paying at a store like Lids for uh, a really nice hat? Um, well, I probably couldn't tell you, like, an exact price point, but they do make custom customized hats, and that is, like, one of the main things that they do. Um, when I was in Minnesota for the Super Bowl, which is when I wrote this uh, story about lids, there was actually a Philadelphia Eagles player who had just been at the store that I was in who was getting a customized hat, and um, which is just kind of funny and speaks to, you know, going to a lids where you see a bunch of hats that all look the same, but someone's still wanting their own thing and their own branding on one. Right. And, of course, there's this person who now occupies the White House who also took that kind of uh, cap and, and made it its own. It's, it's kind of interesting that within the last, I don't know, 12 to 18 months, uh, that kind of cap uh, and the pussy hat have sort of gone to war, right? I mean, we think of America as a society that doesn't like hats, but really that's kind of how we've been battling things out. Yeah, I actually almost see it as, like, pretty um, to be expected because you see people wearing hats and like I said, like in the sports world, it's very much to demonstrate your identity with a team or what whatever city you're from. But it makes sense that that would then extend itself into politics and be a way for people to express, you know, their political views or what what they stand for in a more serious way. Right. I mean, obviously, it's also a MAGA hat. Uh, makes a lot of sense in a warm weather sunbelt uh, red state. Uh, and a pussy hat uh, probably makes sense in a slightly more cold weather blue state. That may be another reason that those hats are what they are. Obviously, sports has its own set of rules and iconography about hats, a hat trick in hockey. And people used to throw their hats uh, on the ice. Uh, and there's an incredible, it's the kind of thing that Claire talked about. There's an incredible set of rules, or used to be in baseball, about tipping 
wearing your cap. Uh, but, uh, Ted Williams refused for many years to tip his cap to the Fenway fans because he was always having terrible fights with them. And they would beg him, beg him after he'd done something exemplary, hitting a grand slam or something, beg him to maybe step out of the dugout and tip his cap. I think towards the end of his career, he grudgingly sort of did it for them. All right, we're going to take a little break here. I want to remind you that we're doing this show in Radio for the Deaf. We have wonderful interpreters here making the show available in American Sign Language. To see that, you have to go to Facebook, and then you have to go to the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. You can see a Facebook Live version of that. Thanks very much to the guests we've had so far. We've got more guests coming up ahead. What kind of hat would you wear to a rally promoting solidarity and equality for cats? I'm just asking. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish does not wear a hat. Fish never do. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ned Beatty. Thanks to Tucker Ives, Jonathan McPants, and everybody at Source Interpreting. On tomorrow's show, The Nose Watches the Black Panther and the new Chris Rock special. And now, back to Colin. If you've been dri- ever been driving around downtown New Haven and driven by this place, you may have noticed what is really a landmark. It's called uh, Delmonico Hatters. It is at 47 Elm Street. It is one of the last traditional hatters of this kind in the Northeast, maybe even in the whole country. We'll find out. Founded in 1908. Joining us right now is Ernest Delmonico, owner of Delmonico Hatter in New Haven. Uh, welcome to the show, sir. Hello. Thank you. So uh, tell us, what, what would we see if one of our listeners who's never been there, if they walked in the door of Delmonico Hatter, what would they see? Well, Delmonico Hatter is, uh, is in downtown New Haven, as you've said. It's a retail hat store. So uh, what you would see right now would be uh, a display of uh, mostly men's hats. There are a few women's hats, but it's mostly a men's hat store of all sizes, styles, and price range. Because when you're selling one item, which our item is, is hats, you really have to appeal across a very broad range. How has this particular shop and this particular company survived? I mean, really, we've been through an era in which, you know, hats have struggled, retail businesses have struggled, locally owned retail businesses have struggled. You've got all of those things working against you. Um, How have you stayed in business? Well, determination, I guess, does it. Don't discourage us now, but... uh, (laughs) We do pay attention to our business. We we know our business, and uh, you know, and we've been there. So, somebody who's twenty five, thirty, thirty five, forty, who wakes up one day and says, "I got to go get a hat. Uh, I got to go to Delmonico uh, and get a hat." Is uh, w- what's making that happen these days? There's a, a word we need to say, which is hipster. There are people, uh, a lot of people in Brooklyn, walking around in fedoras right now, where they wouldn't have been maybe twenty years ago. Is that one of the big drivers? I mean, you've got a big student population there in New Haven. That certainly is a big driver in, in parts of Brooklyn. Um, the, you know, the hipster crowd, and they are wearing fedoras. And we see some of that. Our student population in New Haven is not our customer. I mean, we sell some, of course, but it's not uh, it's not driving the business. Now. That They're not wearing the same items that are being worn in, uh, in Brooklyn. Okay. Uh, I, I teach there, so I, I can kind of confirm that a little bit. Um, I guess another question that I have is, so there was a time, certainly within my lifetime, when uh, any city you went to would have a store like Delmonico, maybe two or three stores like Delmonico, depending on how big this, the city was. And certainly uh, I'm from Hartford. Oh, we had a store uh, very much like yours up here for many years. But these stores have, uh, in fact, a, a lot of uh, lights uh, on 
and those stores have gone out o- over the years. How unusual is Delmonico at this point? I mean, is it the case that there are only like 20, 25, 30 stores left in the country like you? There are probably that many, maybe a few more. Uh, they're mostly in the uh, in uh, larger cities, mm-hmm. Detroit, Chicago, New Orleans. But there are many stores that were founded just about the time we were, uh, in the early part of the uh, 20th century. And some of them are still surviving. Most of them, particularly the ones in the Northeast and what have you, went out of business in the 50s and 60s. The owners retired, and hat wearing was off, and new members of the family certainly weren't going to get into that business. I want you to tell a story about being in California. We should say that, uh, as has been suggested, there are people all over the country who can get on the Delmonico website. Uh, your hats are sometimes used you know, in the fashion industry, in the film industry, uh, even if those fashion show- shows or film shoots are located uh, far, far away. But talk about the person you ran into in California who was wearing an interesting hat. This happens often where we'll be uh, literally walking down the street and see our, our hat boxes uh, in cities all over the country because uh, we, you know, we do sell all over the country. Uh, I was in the airport it was just about a year ago now in San Diego, and uh, I'm just walking through the airport, and there was a man uh, sitting over on the side, and he had a, a nice porcelino hat, an Italian hat, sitting uh, on his luggage. And I just pointed at it and said, nice hat, porcelino. And he looked up and was starting a conversation. He said, oh, yeah, I have four or five of them just like that. And uh, I said, they're really nice. And I talked to him for a couple of minutes, and I thought, okay, let me find out where he gets these. I said, where do you buy your hats? And he said, oh, I get them from New Haven, from Delmonico. (laughs) And I said, I'm Delmonico. And he said, oh, you're the best. Is there in your store kind of the equivalent of a of a BMW or a Mercedes of hats? What's the what's the what's the high end of of hats for you guys? So we have hats that are under fifty dollars, and we have belt hats that go in the $600 range, and then Panama straw hats that go a few hundred dollars beyond that. But the $600 fur felt hat was uh, the one we have, the most popular one we have at that price range is uh, Borsalino also. It's made in Italy. It's 100% beaver fur. But, you know, if there if there's a high end for, say, the straw hat, the, the Panama hat, is that right. actually coming from Central America or South America somewhere? Is that still where those hats are made? The bodies are woven in uh, Ecuador, and some hats are actually bought, blocked, trimmed, and finished there. We have the bodies uh, brought up to the United States and blocked at, at a couple of locations in the United States, and we also have some that are um, blocked and finished in Italy. They're called Panama hats. But there's no relation to the uh, Isthmus of Panama other than the fact that, and I don't know which is the which really brought it across as why they're called Panama hats, but the trading went from uh, Ecuador into Panama, And many of them were sold to the uh, miners going from the East Coast out to California during the gold rush days. And so they bought them there and called them Panama hats. There's also a very famous photo of President uh, Roosevelt in the uh, building of the uh, Panama Canal where he was sitting on a uh, construction equipment and wearing a, uh, a Panama hat. Let me ask you one last question here, and this is maybe not an unthinkable possibility. Imagine that I walked into your store. And I, I said, look, I'm sure you get a few customers like this. Like, I, I want to get a hat. I feel like I'd like to start wearing a hat sometimes. But I don't really know anything about hats, and I don't know what kind of hat I, I should get. Would you be likely to say, well, no, don't get that kind of hat. That's not right for you. In other words, do, would, would you try to match me up with a hat that either 
fit my looks or what you took to be my personality? How would you guide me? Well, the buyer always gives us some guidance. It really, it doesn't really happen. They walk in and give us a blank, a blank slate like that. Okay. They'll tell us that some hat they saw, someone they saw, where they're going to wear it. From that, we'll we'll get an idea of where to go with it. Certainly, we would look at the build of the person. Uh, if, if there's a, a smaller person, we wouldn't give them a great big wide brim hat. And you, you would go in that direction. We also have to encourage them as they're as they're buying. If it's a first hat like that. Just looking in the mirror and seeing a hat on their head, everything is, is, is going to look different for them. We would have to tell them which one really looked good and uh, and and which one we wouldn't let them go out the door with. Uh, we do, do we do do that, and it, it works. I was hoping that you would say that. All right. Well, uh, Ernest Delmonico uh, of Delmonico Hatter in New Haven. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. We wanted to end with some kind of salute to Danbury because it is the hat city. We wanted to also have some reading of uh, Billy Collins's The Death of the Hat. And so we got a Danbury native poet to close the show for us. His name is Chris Booth, and he is reading Billy Collins's The Death of the Hat. Uh, big thanks to the Connecticut Poetry Society who helped us find Chris. And here it goes, that classic Billy Collins poem, The Death of the Hat. Once every man wore a hat. In the ashen newsreels, the avenues of cities are broad rivers flowing with hats. The ballparks swelled with thousands of straw hats, brims and bands, rows of men smoking and cheering in shirt sleeves. Hats were the law. They went without saying. You noticed a man without a hat in a crowd. You bought them from Adams or Dobbs, who branded your initials in gold on the inside band. Trolleys crisscrossed the city. Steamships sailed in and out of the harbor. Men with hats gathered on the docks. There was a person to block your hat, and a hat-check girl to mind it while you had a drink or ate a steak with peas and a baked potato. In your office, stood a hat rack. The day war was declared, everyone in the street was wearing a hat, and they were wearing hats when a ship loaded with men sank in the ICC. My father wore one to work every day and returned home carrying the evening paper, the winter chill radiating from his overcoat. But today we go bareheaded into the winter streets, stand hatless, on frozen platforms. Today, the mailboxes on the roadside and the spruce trees behind the house wear cold white hats of snow. Mice scurry from the stone walls at night in their thin fur hats to eat the birdseed that has spilled. And now my father, after a life of work, wears a hat of earth, and on top of that, a lighter one of cloud and sky, a hat of wind.